Hi everyone, I'm Alistair Stevens, and this is the first part of what I guess we can call the second season of Dear Mr. Potter, a Harry Potter seminar series from Storywonk.com. I hope you'll forgive me if I'm just a little distracted in this, the opening few moments of our seminar session, because we just had some horrific technical difficulties. I had to move the, the live stream from one YouTube page to another, but hopefully everything is working. Okay, we have Kim here, and we have Janine here, and we have Maya here, and we have Kelly here, and Emily's here, and it's all working, and everything is wonderful. Sometimes you just have to give it a tap with your wand before it all works, and I am, ironically enough, as we begin our new Harry Potter season, sporting, I don't know if you can see this on the live stream here, you can't really, but that's okay, I am sporting a couple of cat scratches from our beloved cat, Hermione, who decided to claw at me right before we started the seminar session. Such is the life of a struggling academic who cares so much about Harry Potter. Over the course of the next nine weeks, we are going to study this, the second of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter books, Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. We're going to do eight weeks on the book itself, then we're going to do a ninth week on the movie adaptation. If you were with us for the first season of Dear Mr. Potter, when we discussed Harry Potter and the Philosopher's slash Sorcerer's Stone, that schedule should sound familiar. This series doesn't necessarily require you to be familiar with that first season of Dear Mr. Potter, but if you want more, all of those episodes are available. They're available here on our YouTube page, youtube.com slash storywonk. They're available through iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts, or you can find all of our material over on storywonk.com. Guys, Thank you all so much for joining me. Kelly says, for a second, I thought Alistair was going to show us a tattoo. Not yet. Not yet. It's not that I'm not going to show you a tattoo yet. It's that I don't have a Harry Potter tattoo yet. But, you know, there's still time. We've got another, I don't know, five years of this ahead of us. Guys, thank you all so much for joining me. You can interact with me live, of course, if you are here as this is going out originally in the YouTube chat. I have that scrolling on my screen here. And I also have the Twitter chat. The Twitter is being ever so slightly cantankerous this evening and refusing to update as regularly as it should, but you can reach me through Twitter by using the hashtag SWDMP, that's Swadomp, or Swadomp, I guess we never really sorted that out back in the first season. So that's great, I can see you all here, wonderful. Let's get started. So Chamber of Secrets by J.K. Rowling, the Second of the seven Harry Potter novels of the core Harry Potter series, though that number is getting less and less predictable as we move forward in time, was published in 1998 in the UK and 1999 in the US. That is simply one year after the publication of the first book. It received positive and enthusiastic critical responses and immediately became, as you would expect, a bestseller. It is, as a novel, 10% longer than the first book. Chamber of Secrets is 85,000 words compared to The Philosopher's Stone's 77,000 words, which is a modest beginning to the expansion that would ultimately overtake the series. Order of the Phoenix is 257,000 words, which is as long as the first three novels combined. When we get to the Phoenix Seminar series, presuming that we do get to the Phoenix Seminar series in 2017, no, not 2017, 2019, 2020, I guess by the time we get to that, it's going to take us about six months to get through Order of the Phoenix. Okay, everything seems to be working. I'm just checking all of this stuff is, is still in place here. Good, good. Uh, Jordana says Order of the Phoenix is my favorite book. Ah, oh, Order of the Phoenix might be my favorite book too. I haven't actually given that much thought. And it's interesting that we're already talking about, about favorite books because we should probably acknowledge going into this seminar series that Chamber of Secrets is generally, widely, I think, recognized as 
the least effective, certainly the least popular of the core series. Now, that is not, of course, to say that it is bad, but this is perhaps the worst house in the best neighborhood. Though, I have to tell you, every time I read Chamber of Secrets, I think that I like it more and more. It is weirdly paced. It is weirdly structured. There is, undeniably, a lot of padding, a lot of extraneous material. Yes, the, the house cup makes less sense than it did in the first book, which is impressive. Uh, the tonal disparity between the boarding school adventure side of the story and the traditional fantasy fairy story side of the story is greater than it's ever been. But it works for me because this is a novel absolutely redeemed, absolutely reformed by its ending. When we reach that point at which everything begins to tighten up, all the threads of plot begin to intertwine and begin to, to build toward something, you really feel that momentum carry you along. This is a book that I think works much better in its last third, exactly where you draw the line where those plot threads begin to come together will vary, of course, but perhaps it's the moment when Hermione is hospitalized. I shall say no more than that for fear of spoilers. I do know that we have some people with us tonight who are only reading this book for the first time and have not yet read ahead. So I don't want to jump the timeline too much, though obviously this is Harry Potter. So being scrupulous about spoilers is probably going to be more trouble than it's worth. I think we all just osmotically, culturally have a sense of the arc of Harry Potter in its entirety. No one, I dare say, is going to be surprised that Harry survives this book. No one is going to be surprised that 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 Ginny and Ron and Hermione are all right there with him as we as we move through this book into the rest of the series. So we're not going to be too strict about spoilers, but I don't want to jump the timeline too much, simply because the last act of this book really does pay off a lot of material, and it pays off a lot of material that, honestly, we might not have expected to be paid off at all. All The way that the last act cinches the entire plot up tight, the way that it makes sense of a lot of what we encounter in the opening few chapters, is really remarkable. It's really striking. It is something that J.K. Rowling tends to do. She does tend to backload the, the explanation, if not the exposition. But this book is singular, I think, in to the degree to which the climax redeems the rest of the book. It has one of my favorite climaxes, regardless of, of the overall plot. The echoes of the first book are repeated often through Chamber of Secrets. It's, it's impossible to read Chamber of Secrets without being reminded again and again and again of the Philosopher's Stone. There are conscious callbacks, there are deliberate callbacks, there are echoes, there are reflections, there are moments of symmetry. There are moments of juxtaposition, which we'll discuss not so much this week, but we'll begin to get into next week by the time that we go shopping in Diagon Alley. There's a real intertextuality here. There's a reflexivity here between Chamber of Secrets and that first novel. And this is something that I've thought about a lot over the course of the last few months, because as some of you may know, I've been producing an intermittent seminar series on Star Wars. I've been talking a lot about the original trilogy, about the prequel trilogy, about The Force Awakens. And one of the great criticisms of The Force Awakens when it was released is that it is little more than a retread of the, the original movie, Star Wars A New Hope, the original trilogy in a broader sense, and the Star Wars universe in general. Similar locations are used, similar characters are used, there are similar designs, a similar plot, but... As I said in my lecture on The Force Awakens, and as I've repeated since, those similarities 
aren't meaningless, but they're certainly not proof of a creative process lacking in originality or lacking in vision. It's not just a retelling of the same story in a predictable way. The same is absolutely true of Chamber of Secrets. What makes these reflected and symmetrical elements important is not their presence, though, yes, just as a lightsaber and a desert planet make The Force Awakens feel like Star Wars and Quidditch makes Chamber of Secrets feel like Harry Potter, what's important is not the detail of these events, but it's their purpose. It's their intent. It's the effect that they have on the rest of the story. This is particularly noticeable, in fact, as we draw close to the end of the book, because the entire last act, in some ways, is a, replica, is a replication excuse me, of the last act of the first book. So if you feel as though the Harry lies to Dumbledore, Harry goes to the Forbidden Forest, Harry is rescued by something unexpected, Dumbledore is suddenly absent from Hogwarts, Harry goes into a hidden space beneath the school, confronts a great evil, is cut off from his friends, defeats the big bad by the virtue of bravery and heroism, and then returns to have a comfortable, yet somewhat vague and dissatisfying conversation with Dumbledore. If that should sound familiar to you, don't worry. It's not a sign that this book is less ambitious, or less complex, or less subtle, or less thoughtful, or even, I dare say, less original than Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. What it shows is that this second book, as we're going to discuss as we move through the first chapter, this second book in the series can only exist in the shadow of the first book. It can only exist in part as a response to that first book. And that is one of the most remarkable things about the Harry Potter series as a whole. It's not terribly difficult, as generations of fantasy and science fiction author authors have proved, to create an ongoing series. It's not difficult to take an extended structure and just write more books. What's remarkable about Harry Potter in that sense is that the series elevates and, and, and offers a new perspective on each individual part of the series. The first book exists on its own and it works well. But when you read the second book, you get a different perspective on the first book, and the presence of the first book, of course, informs the second book. Then when you go ahead and you read the third book, you gain a new perspective on the first two. They are elevated by the third book, and the third book is elevated by its connections backward, and so on and so forth through the series. I think that perhaps gets a little more ragged as we get toward the end, as the storylines become a little more ambitious, and it's clear that we... We're building to a seven-year story, but the series and the, the constituent parts of that series interact in a really interesting way. That is one of the things that we are definitely going to be tracking as we move through Chamber of Secrets. We're going to be looking for those points of similarity, we're going to be looking for those points of contrast, and we're going to be discussing, far more importantly, what they mean, what they represent, why are they there. There's a great deal to discuss. Let's see here. Kate says, Harry lies to Dumbledore and Dumbledore lies to Harry. If you want a summation of the entire series, arguably that's it. Kat says, because the books are maturing like characters, they're growing from their base. Yes, I think that's entirely true, though. It, it, okay, this series is oftentimes described in exactly that manner, right? That the first book is a little childish, it's a little innocent, it goes out into the wild world with a great deal of energy and not much discipline, and it works almost despite itself. But as we move through the series... I think we see retroactively, I don't think that this really was intended, as I said in the first season of, of Dear Mr. Potter, J.K. Rowling's story of the creation of this series is 
an example, I think, of, of authorial myth-making. And I don't hold her responsible for that at all. I think that people want to believe that their favorite series was conceived of as, as a whole, that there was only ever one big idea, because for some reason we tend to regard stories that are constructed in a single piece, as a single unit, as being somehow more worthy, somehow more true than stories which are created on an ongoing basis. What I find most interesting, though, is exactly that, that, that there are later elements that do reflexively inform our understanding of these first books. And I would really pair... We're going to see such a shift in culture, such a shift in tone, such a shift in emphasis, such a shift in maturity when we hit Prisoner of Azkaban. I oftentimes think of these first two novels as being companion pieces. They are more tightly reflective of each other than any other book in the series. They are more mutually supportive than any other pair in the series. I really love the way that Chamber of Secrets speaks to the Philosopher's Stone and, retroactively, of course, vice versa. What else do we have here? <laughs> yes, E.R. Lamp says, whenever we get to book seven, we need to talk about ring composition because the parallels between the various books are incredible. I don't know, E.R. Lamp, if you are deliberately calling out the phrase ring composition there, if that is a, a call out to uh, Mike Klimo's remarkable work on the prequel trilogy of Star Wars, or actually I should say the connections between the prequel trilogy of Star Wars and the original trilogy of Star Wars. I am far more receptive to ring theories when it comes to J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter than I am when it comes to George Lucas and Star Wars for, good lord, just a multitude of reasons. But we'll talk about that when we'll get there. You're absolutely right. There are richer and richer conversations to be had as we move through the series as a whole. Jeff Powers on Twitter says, Prisoner of Azkaban is my jam. I can understand that. Prisoner of Azkaban is the moment when I think the entire series just begins to build momentum. And in a very real sense, it's a momentum that doesn't let up until the series is done. All right. <laughs> Maya says, I read this book right when it came out and Harry Potter wasn't huge yet. I remember my friends telling me the story sounded dumb. Ah, uh, what's up now, guys? Maya, as ever, as ever, you, <laughs> you lead us all. Good. And I'm, I'm trying to catch up, of course, as, as chat is scrolling as rapidly as it is. It is so great to have you guys all here. Let's, um, good, good, good. See, it wouldn't be a seminar unless I just stared off into space and said good, good, good from time to time as I try and catch up. In much the same way as Chamber of Secrets is reflective of, of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, so this season of Dear Mr. Potter will be essentially reflective of the first season of Dear Mr. Potter and all the other seminar series that I've done. There will be, you know, a certain amount of intertextuality here as I become aware of my own flaws and foibles and try to compensate for them in the context of the seminar. All right. All of that, though, all that discussion of the series as a whole, all that discussion of J.K. Rowling's intent and then execution, all of that discussion of, of layered and of nested symmetries and reflections, all of that must wait for the future because we must begin this book. And we will begin this book, as I call up a slide, by looking at the very first page. Not for the first time, an argument had broken out over breakfast at number four, Privet Drive. Mr. Vernon Dursley had been woken in the early hours of the morning by a loud hooting noise from his nephew Harry's room. Third time this week, he roared across the table. If you can't control that owl, it'll have to go. Harry tried yet again to explain. She's bored, he said. She's used to flying around outside. 
If I could just let her out at night. Do I look stupid? snarled Uncle Vernon, a bit of fried egg dangling from his bushy moustache. I know what'll happen if that owl's let out. He exchanged dark looks with his wife, Petunia. Harry tried to argue back, but his words were drowned by a long, loud belch from the Dursley's son, Dudley. I want more bacon! The beginning of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone is a relatively sprawling affair. We begin, as you may recall, with the delivery of baby Harry to the Dursley's doorstep and with our introduction to Rubius Hagrid, to Minerva McGonagall, and of course to Albus Dumbledore. We then cut forward and we get, as those of you who listened to the first Dear Mr. Potter seminar will doubtless remember how impressed I was by this, we get the literary equivalent of a beautiful cinematic pan crossing the Dursley's living room, giving us incidental details and atmosphere as we go, before dropping us beautifully into the present, into Harry's POV. It is ambitious, it is orchestral, it is also a more traditional opening. The beginning of Chamber of Secrets, as you see here, could not be more different. We get to the recap and the exposition in the next few pages, but we open in Medius Race, in the middle of the action. And Rowling emphasizes that this is not the beginning by any means by dragging our reference frame back into the past before the first page. Look at the language. Not for the first time. Had been woken. Third time this week. Yet again. This is our first time here. We've only had maybe a hundred words so far. But by the time we reach the end of this excerpt, not even the end of the first page, we're already, I think, with Harry, we feel his frustration. We feel his, oh, his exhaustion. So there's no doubt as we begin the book that it's the second in the series. There are, let me cancel this slide. There are so few concessions made to new readers. As I said, in the pages to come, we're going to get in three chunks, really, we're going to get a recap of the events of the first book. We're going to get a sense of Harry's life with the Dursleys before he went to Hogwarts, then the good parts of his first year at Hogwarts, and then the bad parts, really the plot of Philosopher's Stone. We get that exposition delivered directly to us. But if you didn't read that book, if you didn't accompany Harry on that adventure, and that use of language, I think, is not accidental. I think that, that's purposeful. We, we want to be connected to Harry in this moment, and if we're not, then those accounts are bewildering. We might get the proper nouns, we might be able to gather together a sense of the story, but we don't really get the truth of it. We don't get to inhabit that story through the exposition. And you may think that that's the consequence of exposition. We never really get to understand a story by reading the, the Wikipedia pricey of that story, and that's true, but look what happens later in the book. Look what happens when we're introduced once again to Ron and to Fred and to George and ultimately to Hagrid, to Hermione. We're introduced to Diagon Alley. None of these things get an introduction. They're all just present. They're all just assumed. And I don't think for a moment that that's unintentional. This is right from the jump a very different kind of story. It's not just the second book in a series. As I said, Chamber of Secrets on the one hand and The Philosopher's Stone on the other are symmetrical and reflective in really interesting ways. And I think the lack of opening exposition here is purposeful. We're caught up immediately. We are far more 
present in Harry's POV, and yet that POV is far more challenged, implicitly challenged, than in the first book. It already feels as though we're less sure of our footing. It already feels as though there are fewer concrete truths in the world. We'll get to some of that in just a moment. Let me see what we have here. Oh, <laughs> a few people are being very kind about the character voices. I must admit, I had to go back and remember how I did Hagrid. I couldn't remember Hagrid. Uh, and we don't have any Hagrid tonight. That'll be next week. Hagrid, look forward to that next week. We have Jeff is showing <laughs> his porch club image of, of red wine and Jameson. That looks awfully good. Kim has whiskey and Coke. This is wonderful. <laughs> oh, and Sarah says, no Hagrid voice this week. Yes, unfortunately, no Hagrid voice this week. Um, yeah. It's going to be a few weeks before I get to the really good voices, unfortunately. <laughs> All right, so... Here we have this bold opening. Here we have this, this in medias race opening, as I said. You know, we're thrown immediately into the action. We're deliberately made to feel, in fact, as though this isn't just action that is beginning. This is the, the third, fourth, fifth repetition of this scene. This is Harry Summer being ground out and these, these moments of confrontation and conflict. Yeah. And all of this, I think... All of this, I think, has a strong narrative purpose, as well as what we might think of as a, a literary purpose. If you're joining us for the first time, if this is your first Story Wonk session, I guess I should maybe draw something of a dividing line between those two things. I don't want to disparage either genre storytellers or literary writers. Literary fiction is preoccupied with the act of creating prose itself. Literary fiction is about the creation of a work of art, rather than a story, rather than a work of narrative. Now, of course, literary fiction can create narratives, and genre fiction can create art. It's only a matter of, of where your primary interest lies. If you're interested in telling a story, then you're writing genre fiction. That's a troubling term, too. Go listen to, like, all of the podcasts I've ever recorded and hear me talk about that at great length. If you're writing literary fiction, then you're, you're concerned with the artifice of the thing. You're concerned with your approach. You're concerned with the process. You're concerned with your technique. You're concerned with the details of craft. You're concerned with the tool itself, not the use to which that tool may be put. Now, this is a bold literary choice that absolutely serves a narrative purpose. Beginning in Medias Race connects us with Harry. And that's not just an exercise in, in extracting empathy from the reader. We're not just creating vulnerability in Harry so that we may be emotionally invested in him as our protagonist. We're doing something far more interesting, and we'll get to that in just a moment. Let's look at the next slide. This is our first chunk of exposition. Harry Potter was a wizard. A wizard fresh from his first year at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And if the Dursleys were unhappy to have him back for the holidays, it was nothing to how Harry felt. He missed Hogwarts so much, it was like having a constant stomachache. He missed the castle, with its secret passageways and ghosts, his classes, though perhaps not Snape, the potion master, the male arriving by owl, eating banquets in the great hall, sleeping in his four-poster bed in the tower dormitory, visiting the gamekeeper, Hagrid, in his cabin next to the forbidden forest in the grounds, and especially Quidditch, the most popular sport in the wizarding world, six tall goalposts, four flying balls, and fourteen players on broomsticks. 
All Harry's spellbooks, his wand, robes, cauldron, and top-of-the-line Nimbus 2000 broomstick had been locked in a cupboard under the stairs by Uncle Vernon the instant Harry had come home. What did the Dursleys care if Harry lost his place on the house Quidditch team because he hadn't practiced all summer? What was it to the Dursleys if Harry went back to school without any of his homework done? The Dursleys were what wizards called muggles, not a drop of magical blood in their veins. And as far as they were concerned, having a wizard in the family was a matter of deepest shame. Uncle Vernon had even padlocked Harry's owl Hedwig inside her cage to stop her from carrying messages to anyone in the wizarding world. So we see here that it's more than the bullying that he receives at the hands of his uncle and his cousin. Harry has a deep homesickness for Hogwarts. Though, of course, technically, in a real sense, as we discussed at the end of the first season of Dear Mr. Potter, he is home. This is, in part at least, where he belongs. But his his inner journey has already begun. He has already been displaced. And he can't return to this familiar environment and put up with it the way that he used to put up with it. We talked at length about Harry's relationship with the Dursleys, the, Durley, the Dursleys as, as symbols of the mundane muggle world. Harry needs to be connected to that side of his life, of his existence, because that is where he came from. That's the experience that he had up until that letter arrived from Hogwarts. He's not allowed to break that connection. But there's something else, something much deeper going on here. Back in the first session of the Philosopher's Stone seminar series, I, I talked a little about J.R.R. Tolkien and the virtues that he found in fantasy literature in fairy stories. Those are, firstly, consolation, the ability of stories to reassure you that the world is just, that causes lead to effects, to, I guess, to borrow from, from Oscar Wilde, that the good end happily and the bad unhappily. Secondly, Fantasy fiction gives us escape, the ability to leave the mundane world behind and to witness impossible things. And lastly, and this is perhaps the one that offers us the most interesting perspective in the beginning of the Chamber of Secrets, restoration or recovery. This is, if anything, I think, the most important of the three. This is the ability of a well-written story to restore to us some measure of the awe that we felt as children, when the world was huge and unknowable and amazing. The older we get, the more we lose that sense of awe, the more we lose our ability to feel wonder. The world becomes smaller. Our paths become more predictable. We are more bound by responsibility and bound, too, by expectation, by understanding itself. Restoration, recovery, the power of a good story can Give us that sense of awe that we felt when we were young. And that sense of awe is what fills the world with magic. As we move through the first chapter of this book, I think that we begin to realize that the same has happened to Harry. As we read the first volume in this series, and we had our eyes opened, and we had that sense of recovery, and we had that sense of, of awe, in a very real sense, Harry went through the same process. His memories of Hogwarts now, after the fact, are, are warm, are, are malleable. They're beginning to lose some definition. They're beginning that, 
that slow erosion from literal truth to memory. They're becoming softer, more metaphorical, more representative versions of themselves. They're becoming impressionistic, almost. Perhaps, we're told, maybe I wouldn't like to take a potions class with Snape. Maybe. Because you know how great Snape is, right? I mean, he's such a goofball. It'd be fine. He even tells us in a few pages that he would almost welcome the sight of Draco Malfoy. He has to forcibly remind himself, in due course, that his first year wasn't all broomsticks and banquets. He has to remember, consciously, that he very nearly died at the hands of the greatest dark wizard in history. He's conflicted about his relationship with Hogwarts, but he's not connected with Hogwarts right now. This elicits our empathy, of course, and it reminds us that in some very powerful ways, ignorance can be bliss. That's not a theme with which Harry Potter as a series is particularly uh, sympathetic, but it's an interesting undercurrent in, in some of our conversations about these books, nonetheless. But much more importantly than eliciting sympathy, much more importantly than raising the idea that ignorance can be bliss, that if Harry Potter had never gone to Hogwarts, then he would not now be missing Hogwarts, much more importantly than both of those things, it is rooting us in Harry's position. It is putting us in his shoes and, in a sense, putting him in ours. By virtue of the long summer and then the return to the Dursleys, Harry's actual experience of Hogwarts, his entire first-year adventure, has become, I mean, in a sense, somewhat conflated with the first book. His memory of that year isn't that different from our memory of that year. He's even beginning to think about the story the way that we think about the story. What happened in the first year? Well... God, there was Quidditch, and there were banquets, and there was, like, the mystery thing, and there was... Oh, right, okay, so he almost died at the end of the book, I guess, but wow, the rest of it was really fun. It's been a year for us since we started Dear Mr. Potter. It's been a year for me personally since I read that first book. And I connect with Harry here. I'm looking back on Hogwarts with some of that same misty-eyed, impressionistic affection. Oh man, you remember Snape? Remember how great Snape was? Well, no. Because Snape is awful to Harry. There isn't a single interaction with Snape in the first book that Harry enjoyed, but now his memory, his sense of those things is... I don't want to say fading, he's clearly still, still remembering these details, but it's less acute, it's less complete, it's less immediate than it used to be. And that sense of Harry as someone who is aware of the unfolding of his own story is a really interesting one. That's something that we're going to have to keep track of as we move forward through the entire book. Yeah. Good, good, good. <laughs> oh, Maya says, don't worry, Harry, you'll remember the real Snape very soon. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. <laughs> Janine gives us an alternate title. I don't know if this is an alternate title for the first book. Harry Potter and the Quidditch and the Banquets and the Mystery Thing. Ah, I like that. <laughs> Good. All right. <laughs> the Dursleys were what wizards called the literal worst, says Janine. Excellent. I like that a lot. All right. So let's look at the next slide. Um... We have a few more little minor detours before we really get into the plot here. At that moment, Uncle Vernon cleared his throat importantly and said, Now, 
As we all know, today's a very important day. Harry looked up, hardly daring to believe it. This could well be the day I'll make the biggest deal of my career, said Uncle Vernon. Harry went back to his toast. Of course, he thought bitterly, Uncle Vernon was talking about the stupid dinner party. He'd been talking of nothing else for two weeks. Some rich builder and his wife were coming to dinner, and Uncle Vernon was hoping to get a huge order from him. Uncle Vernon's company made drills. I think we should run through the schedule one more time, said Uncle Vernon. We should all be in position at eight o'clock. Petunia, you will be... In the lounge, said Aunt Petunia promptly, waiting to welcome them graciously to our home. Good, good. And Dudley... I'll be waiting to open the door, Dudley put on a foul, simpering smile. May I take your coats, Mr. and Mrs. Mason? They'll love him, cried Aunt Petunia rapturously. This is, on the surface, such a silly and minor subplot that it barely merits any study at all. It turns out, though, that Vernon Dursley's fatuous attempts to impress his potential business partner speak to one of the core themes of the entire book. In the first book, we discussed at length the ways in which J.K. Rowling explores identity. There is that constant tension and contrast and conflict between the magical world and the muggle world. There's the slow unveiling of Harry's own identity. There's this complex taxonomy of the great houses of Hogwarts. We're going to continue to address questions of identity as we move through Chamber of Secrets, but we're going to do so in a slightly different way. In The Philosopher's Stone, identity is a thing that is, generally speaking, defined. It is a thing discovered. Harry learns about his past and thus learns about who he is. He learns about the great houses of Hogwarts and is sorted and thus learns who he is. In Chamber of Secrets, though, identity is explicitly, primarily, a much more fluid and reflexive and deceptive thing. When we think about characters who engage with their own identity, well, where do we start? I mean, the obvious examples, Gilderoy Lockhart, uh, Tom Riddle, Harry himself, of course, we're going to talk about Moaning Myrtle, and we're going to talk about Draco Malfoy, and we're going to talk about Ginny Weasley, and we're going to talk about Dobby, and we're going to talk about Nearly Headless Nick. We're going to talk about the Polyjuice Potion and the, the complicated ways in which the air of Slytherin interacts with our sense of identity. But we're going to begin here, much, much earlier. We're going to begin with this piece of pantomime theatre. We're going to begin with Vernon Dursley consciously trying to change his identity, trying to impress a potential business partner. And it is, of course, a disastrous failure, as all attempts to forcibly change one's identity are. Clearly, we'll circle back around to that at the end of the book. I've kept this slide up, though, because I also want to look at the fourth paragraph here, and I want to look at the ways in which we are drawn into Harry's POV very specifically. Look carefully at that fourth paragraph, beginning with Harry went back to his toast. Harry went back to his toast. In italics, of course, he thought bitterly. Uncle Vernon was talking about the stupid dinner party. That italic text represents Harry's internal monologue. This is his unspoken thought. This is essentially dialogue. But then look at what happens next. He'd been talking of nothing else for two weeks. Well, okay, that could be a return from Harry's monologue to the narrative voice of the novel. Some rich builder and his wife were coming to dinner, and Uncle Vernon was hoping to get a huge order from him. Some rich builder, though, 
That is not the narrative voice. That is not, if you will, J.K. Rowling's voice. That's clearly Harry's voice. The narrative voice of the Harry Potter novels absolutely loves to give us extraneous detail. The narrative voice of the Harry Potter novels loves to play with names. It loves to play with identities. It loves to create these, these minor peripheral characters. This is clearly Harry's voice, but it's no longer offset in those italics. So what's happened? I think it's clear that the, the narrative voice itself has become co-opted by Harry. This is the moment, I think, where we move as forcibly as we ever do into Harry's direct POV. We're given a little more distance as we move through the exposition at the beginning of the book. We're given a little more objectivity, if you like. But just as in the first novel, we panned across the living room and we dropped suddenly, plop, into Harry's POV, this is a similar kind of moment. Though obviously it's much less distinct, it's much less it's much more ragged, it happens much further into the book, and it's much less clear. Arguably, it may not be happening at all. The clues are some rich builder, and then this little parenthetical, Uncle Vernon's company made drills. Uncle Vernon's company made drills, in parenthesis, is also a strange addition for the narrative voice. We're going to look to at the ways that parenthetical asides are used in the text of Harry Potter, the way that J.K. Rowling uses them as a writer, because oftentimes they are, oh, they are so much more than they appear to be. Mostly, though, we need to look at this as, as a study of identity, as a study of the desire to represent oneself as something other than one really is. It's impossible to read this with a full knowledge of the book and not think of Gilderoy Lockhart. The two are not so very different. Let's move straight on to the next slide here. Here we are. So much later, Harry is out in the garden when he is bothered once more by Dudley. He's already suffering from his, his aching memories of Hogwarts. He hasn't had any contact with Ron, with Hermione, despite promises to that effect. We're about to discover why that is. But first, we have this brief interaction. Why are you staring at the hedge? he said suspiciously. I'm trying to decide what would be the best spell to set it on fire, said Harry. Dudley stumbled backward at once, a look of panic on his face. You, you can't. Dad said you're not to do m magic. He said he'll chuck you out of the house. You haven't got anywhere else to go. You haven't got any friends to take you. Jiggery pokery, said Harry in a fierce voice. Hocus pocus, squiggly wiggly. Mom, howled Dudley, tripping over his feet as he dashed back toward the house. Mom, he's doing you know what. Harry paid dearly for his moment of fun. As neither Dudley nor the Hedge was in any way hurt, Aunt Petunia knew he hadn't really done magic, but he still had to duck as she aimed a heavy blow at his head with the soapy frying pan. Then she gave him work to do, with the promise he wouldn't eat again until he'd finished. First off, let's take a moment to celebrate snarky Harry. Let's take a moment to recognize there is really no need in this moment for Harry to respond to this provocation in quite the way that he responds to this provocation. He is not above exercising his intellect, if not his magical skill, in the pursuit of an immature, abstract, but nonetheless compelling justice. But there's something much more interesting happening here, and I think that it it really informs our understanding of what Harry 
has gone through, particularly as we look ahead to the rest of the book. This is a book preoccupied with issues of class, as we're going to discuss later in this discussion. Class of, of blood, of inheritance, of history. We're going to talk about all of those things. But there's a really interesting clue in this passage that changes my understanding of what exactly Harry has been struggling with. Because we've talked so much about the ways in which he's been separated from Hogwarts. We've talked about the ways in which he's been separated from his recent experience. He's certainly explicitly been separated from his friends, but he has, throughout this experience, been separated from something far more important. He's been separated from his family. He's been separated from a real sense of his parents and his inheritance. Now, why is that relevant as we look at this passage? Well, the direct quote is this. As neither Dudley nor the Hedge was in any way hurt, Aunt Petunia knew he hadn't really done magic. Aunt Petunia is an interesting character because she is almost exclusively used within this novel as comic relief. She's used as a counterpoint to Vernon Dursley. She's used as a way of exacerbating his enormous grotesquerie. He's, he's a monster, he's an ogre, he's a beast, and she is right there, the, the counterpoint to that. But there's something else really interesting happening here, because we're about to find out in short order that the decree for the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery, paragraph C, was passed in 1875, which means that the injunction against young witches and wizards using their powers outside of Hogwarts was in place when Petunia's sister, Lily, went to Hogwarts. Petunia, and it's really easy to forget about this because the narrative does everything it can to pull back from it. It's really easy to forget that Petunia has been down this road before. Petunia knew about Lily. She knew about Lily's experiences at Hogwarts. She knew about magic. But we don't talk about Lily. We don't talk about James. We don't talk about Harry's side of the family at all. It seems clear to me that the reason Aunt Petunia knew that Harry hadn't done magic is that it's possible that Aunt Petunia knew that Harry wasn't allowed to do magic, that this entire this entire pretense, this entire, I want to say misunderstanding, but that doesn't feel nearly intentional enough. This entire arrangement between Harry and the Dursleys, this threat of power unused, this has all been a charade that Aunt Petunia could have undercut it, could have resolved it immediately, had she simply talked about Lily. But we don't talk about Lily. We don't talk about James. We don't talk about that side of the family. That is how absolutely Harry has been cut off from his inheritance, from his family, from his, well, not entirely from his sense of identity, I guess, but from that very real, very personal, very direct sense of his, uh, sense of his identity, sense of himself. Yeah. <laughs> Danielle says, Sassy Harry is my favorite. Yes. And Earlap says, also, wow, Petunia, you could have done some serious damage if you'd actually hit him. Swinging a frying pan, you guys. Swinging a frying pan, something with which I'm usually absolutely on board. Tangled. I'm a little less sympathetic to the swinging of a frying pan here. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Let's see, I'm scrolling back here to find the, the beginning of these threads. Oh, Amy is leaving us. I'm sorry for the delays, Amy. I hope you will catch the podcast. I hope you will enjoy it. Good. 
Christine says, I never realized until now that the Dursleys probably physically abused Harry his whole life. One doesn't just swing a frying pan at a person as a first act of violence. And I found that really interesting too. And I was trying to unpick the exact relationship between Harry and the Dursleys vis-a-vis, you know, physical violence, physical aggression, the manifestation of that. It's complicated. It's not at all straightforward because we're in Harry's POV. So did she really swing the frying pan at him with the intent to strike him? Well, probably not. That seems excessive even for Petunia Dursley, right? But it feels like that to Harry. Again, we're, we're stuck, we're trapped in this question of how objective our account of these events really is and how deeply they're being influenced by Harry's perception of events. And the thing is this, if what Petunia actually did was threaten to hit Harry with a soapy frying pan, that is, I mean, different, but not worse than actually hitting him with a frying pan. You know, it's, it's about the, the leveraging of that authority in a way that is, by virtue of the fact that it's unmanifested, almost more grotesque, almost more oppressive. Harry's being oppressed with fear rather than with violence, which, I mean, neither one of those things obviously terribly good, particularly when you're talking about a young boy, but this is where we are. Let's move on. Let me scroll through and catch up. Jamie says, it's almost like I was really innocent and saw the scenes as farcical, but now they bother me. Yes, this is one of the problems of closely reading uh, Harry Potter is that the scenes with the Dursleys, good God. Yeah, they really do. They really do weigh on you. Good. All right. <laughs> Kate says, wow, Tangled spoilers. <laughs> Minor spoilers for Tangled. She swings a mean frying pan. All right, let's move on and move into chapter two, the second of the three chapters we're going to cover tonight. And I have 35 minutes. I'm trying to keep these seminar sessions to uh, to 90 minutes, though I guess we had some technical trouble, so I can run a little over tonight, but I don't want to make a habit of that. So let's push on with this. After Harry has been sent to his room as the Dursleys are entertaining their potential business partners, he finds Dobby on his bed. What? Harry stammered. But I've got to go back. Term starts on September 1st. It's all that's keeping me going. You don't know what it's like. I don't belong here. I belong in your world, at Hogwarts. No, 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 squeaked Dobby, shaking his head so hard that his ears flapped. Harry Potter must stay where he is safe. He is too great, too good to lose. If Harry Potter goes back to Hogwarts, he will be in mortal danger. Why? said Harry in surprise. There is a plot, Harry Potter, a plot to make most terrible things happen at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry this year, whispered Dobby, suddenly trembling all over. Dobby has known it for months, sir. Harry Potter must not put himself in peril. He is too important, sir. What terrible things, said Harry at once. Who's plotting them? Dobby made a funny choking noise and then banged his head frantically against the wall. All right, cried Harry, grabbing the elf's arm to stop him. You can't tell me, I understand, but... Why are you warning me? A sudden, unpleasant thought struck him. Hang on. This hasn't got anything to do with Vault. Sorry, with you-know-who, has it? You could just shake or nod, he added hastily as Dobby's head tilted worryingly close to the wall again. Slowly, Dobby shook his head. Not, not he who must not be named, sir. But Dobby's eyes were wide, and he seemed to be trying to give Harry a hint. Harry, however was completely lost. Let me say first, I guess, that I don't like Dobby in this book. I'm not a huge fan of self-flagellating 
Dobby, I'm not a big fan of needlessly, excessively cryptic Dobby. I like what happens with Dobby later in the series. I like the house elf storyline in general later in the series. No spoilers on that. But the truth is that understanding Dobby, that integrating Dobby properly into the story at this point is, is very, very difficult. I have a working theory that I'll maybe talk about later in this session, or maybe next week, depending on how much time we have, that I think explains pretty much everything we see in the scene and then later in the book too. But I had to work to try to make sense of Dobby's involvement. And as inciting incidents go, this one is pretty damn contrived. Let's look at the slide. I don't belong here. I belong in your world, Harry says. We've just established how terrible Dobby's life is by the time that we begin this slide. We've talked about this life of slavery and of servitude. We've talked about how much he suffers. We've talked, of course, about the self-punishment, the constant pain. We've talked about all of that, but Harry doesn't belong here. He belongs in Dobby's world. And even framing it as Dobby's world is enormously powerful. He belongs at Hogwarts. He recognizes that Dobby is symbolic of this entirely different way of life, of this parallel world that runs alongside the mundane, that even crosses it at certain points, but is different. It would be, for Harry, perhaps, better to be a house elf in the home of Lucius Malfoy than to be Harry Potter in the home of the Dursleys. And that's obviously not just about suffering. It's not just about physical hardship. It's not just about the complete domination of his spirit and of his will, because let's face it, Dobby doesn't have a great life either. But being a part of the wizarding world is inherently better for Harry than this life of, of wretched mundanity. He needs to be at Hogwarts. This is a core part of who he is. What do you guys make of that? It's difficult to talk about, I guess, the the second half of this excerpt without looking ahead to the end of the story. I don't like the... Hmm, I don't like the hint. I'm not a big fan of the hint, and I'm not a big fan of the justification that we get for the hint later in the story. Not because it's not clever in and of itself. My problem with Dobby is not that Dobby is, I guess, poorly written. It's more that Dobby is poorly conceived. The contrived and arbitrary limits that are placed upon his free will bother me. He feels like an inconsistent part of this world. That's not always going to be true. As I said, even when we revisit with Dobby later in the book, we're going to get a better sense of his place, his function, his even, even his agency. But at this point... It feels as though he has shown up to deliver exactly the information that we need to drive the plot forward, and not one whit more, and, to make things worse, it doesn't even really drive the plot forward. We get some incidental details which are trivially resolved. What do you guys make of of Dobby? What do you make of house elves in general? Dobby in this book, says Jeff, could be one of Glory's minions. Yeah, that's done it. That's that's absolutely completely true. Now, if you've been watching uh, season five of Buffy the Vampire Slayer along with our podcast Dusted, or if you've seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer before, then you will remember Jinx and the other minions that accompany Glory in season five. And yes, yeah, not a million miles away. He needs more effusive flattery, I think, if he's really going to fit in with Jinx and the other minions. But yeah, 
Yeah. Kim says, so he needs to be exceptional. He isn't whole until he's allowed to be. That's interesting. Yeah, if we're, if we're talking about Harry here, if... Hmm. Because it's not exceptionalism per se, or at least it's it's only exceptionalism from the perspective of the muggle world. But in wizarding terms, if Harry is genuinely... Let me close this, uh, close this slide off here. If Harry is genuinely envious of Dobby, then that would imply rather powerfully that it really is just about that, that community, that it really is about the sense of belonging. It must be incredibly difficult for Harry to have had his entire understanding of the world and his place in it turned upside down the previous year, only to be so absolutely categorically restored to mundanity. There's, that image of all of his textbooks and his broomstick and his wand being locked up under the stairs, that's particularly powerful. Yeah. Good. Okay. Jordana says, How's Elves' existence give me more questions for the American wizards? Yes. that That's a true thing. Yes. Um, okay. <laughs> so many, so many great conversations, so many great observations. Yes. Yeah. Yes, E.R. Lamp says, uh, Dobby is such a pain for no reason. He thinks he has a reason, but he never actually changes the course of the narrative. Yes. This is the biggest objection, I think, to Dobby as a, a structural narrative element. We have to unpick not even what he accomplishes, because it's okay for a character to not actually accomplish things as long as they're trying with the best intent to change the arc of the story. It seems unclear as to what Dobby is even trying to accomplish. You know what? Let's move on to the next slide, and we'll, we'll circle back around to Dobby's ultimate motivation in just one moment, because first of all, we have to talk about the letters. Let me call this up. See what it's like here, he said. See why I've got to go back to Hogwarts? It's the only place I've got. Well, I think I've got friends. Friends who don't even write to Harry Potter, said Dobby slyly. I expect they've just been... Wait a minute, said Harry, frowning. How do you know my friends haven't been writing to me? Dobby shuffled his feet. Harry Potter mustn't be angry with Dobby. Dobby did him for the best. Have you been stopping my letters? Dobby has them here, sir, said the elf. Stepping nimbly out of Harry's reach, he pulled a thick wad of envelopes from the inside of the pillowcase he was wearing. Harry could make out Hermione's neat writing, Ron's untidy scrawl, and even a scribble that looked as though it was from the Hogwarts gamekeeper, Hagrid. Dobby blinked anxiously up at Harry. Harry Potter mustn't be angry. Dobby hoped if Harry Potter thought his friends had forgotten him, Harry Potter might not want to go back to school, sir. This is... Again, this is problematic. This is fundamentally problematic. It's narratively problematic, and it's problematic when we try to to understand, or alternatively, to rationalize Dobby's motivations at this point in the book. How, and this is a fairly important question, did he get access to the presumably owl-delivered letters intended for Harry? Why did he keep them if his intent was to persuade Harry not to return to school? If he thought that Harry wouldn't return to Hogwarts because his friends had, had abandoned him, why does Dobby bring the letters with him now and then offer them in exchange for Harry's promise that he won't return to Hogwarts? None of this hangs together in a terribly satisfying fashion. Though, well... <laughs> 
let's recap. I, I'm I'm caught here between really delving into the story, giving a recap of the story, and trying to make sense of the primary plot here in our, our first discussion, or putting a pin in this until we have the big reveal right at the end of the story, and then retroactively trying to make sense of it. Um, I think what we'll do is we'll hold off on this for now. We'll discuss it more when we get to the appropriate juncture. There is a theory, I think, that, that makes sense of all of this. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's a little loose and we need more information before we can really talk about it. I don't want to jump ahead too far. Yeah. Yeah. And William says also, where in his pillowcase was Dobby exactly keeping those letters? These are excellent questions. Yes. And Jamie asks, and why didn't Dumbledore step in like he did in the first book by sending Hagrid? Another excellent question. Another excellent question. We know what happens when mail, I guess official mail from Hogwarts, goes unopened, goes unreplied to. This is personal correspondence, so perhaps it's different, but I don't know. We manage to move past it fairly swiftly because we have Ron appear almost immediately. That works well enough, but it is difficult. There are unanswered questions here, and those unanswered questions will remain, unfortunately, until pretty much... Pretty much the end of the story. Yeah, good. Good. Anne says, It's amazing how much more powerful elf magic is than wizard magic. That, too, is completely fascinating. We're going to have a lot to discuss when we move into the uh, the, the house elf story much later in the series. <laughs> Let's move on to chapter three. I'm, I'm running a little short on time. Let's move immediately on to chapter three. Let's move immediately on to the next slide. After Ron and Fred and George appear at the window in the Flying Ford Anglia, they manage to jailbreak Harry. And if ever we had a question about authority in Harry Potter, if ever we had a question about rules and rule breaking, this is a very important piece of evidence. Harry has, despite how much he suffers emotionally, if not physically, at the hands of the Dursleys, despite how wretched and miserable his life is, he has a dubious legal authority to break out of the house and to fly away with Ron and his brothers. He has a dubious moral authority when it comes to running away from home, to, to extricating himself from the situation. The Dursleys are his legal guardians, after all. But once again, we see that well, the law doesn't have that much to say about Harry's actions. And that's completely okay. That's not a judgment. That's not a moral judgment, certainly. Part of the the background fabric, part of the, the textual and thematic fabric that, that underpins Harry Potter as a series is that exact idea that the rules serve to keep us safe, but valor requires us to step into danger. Nothing is accomplished if everyone tries to stay safe all of the time. So this is a very short excerpt taken from uh, the scene in which Harry and Ron and Fred and George are flying back to the burrow. Well, said Fred, put it this way. Our selves have got powerful magic of their own, but they can't usually use it without their master's permission. I reckon old Dobby was sent to stop you coming back to Hogwarts. Someone's idea of a joke. Can you think of anyone at the school with a grudge against you? Yes, said Harry and Ron together, instantly. Draco Malfoy, Harry explained. He hates me. Draco Malfoy, said George, turning around. Not Lucius Malfoy's son. Must be, it's not a very common name, is it? Said Harry. Why? I've heard Dad talking about him, said George. 
He was a big supporter of you-know-who. This is a tiny character beat. It's a tiny character moment, and it only works if we've been paying very close attention to Harry to date. Here we are at the beginning of the third chapter, and this is the moment, or if not the moment, it certainly marks the previous moment, when Harry is suddenly, completely, powerfully reintegrated into the Hogwarts side of his story. All of his previous experience returns in a rush, and we can tell that because of Harry and Ron talking together. Yes, said Harry and Ron together instantly. Draco Malfoy, Harry explained. He hates me. A few pages earlier, Harry had been thinking that it wouldn't even necessarily be so bad to see Draco Malfoy again if it meant that he could see Hogwarts. But now the the dulling effect of his time at the Dursleys has been completely undone, and it would be trivial, I think, to believe that that was the consequence of Ron's arrival. It might be trivial to believe that it's a consequence of Dobby's detonation of the dessert in the kitchen. Instead, I think it's a combination of Dobby's appearance in the first place, his restoration of Harry's faith that, that his time at Hogwarts was real, and also, of course, the letters. The moment where Harry realizes that he hadn't been forgotten, he hadn't been left behind by his friends. That's, understandably, I think, a very powerful moment. So, that's a quiet beat as we're on our way to the burrow. Yes. Not a common name, as if any names in this world are common, says Emma Furman. That is an excellent observation, yes. Not one person has a common name. Good. Let's move on to the burrow, then, and this is going to open up our last major point of conversation for tonight's session. Touchdown, said Fred, as with a slight bump, they hit the ground. They had landed next to a tumble-down garage in a small yard, and Harry looked out for the first time at Ron's house. It looked as though it had once... Excuse me. It looked as though it had once been a large stone pig pen, but extra rooms had been added here and there until it was several stories high, and so crooked it looked as though it were held up by magic, which, Harry reminded himself, it probably was. Four or five chimneys were perched on top of the red roof. A lopsided sign stuck in the ground near the entrance read, The Burrow. Around the front door lay a jumble of rubber boots and a very rusty cauldron. Several fat brown chickens were pecking their way around the yard. It's not much, said Ron. It's wonderful, said Harry happily, thinking of Privet Drive. They got out of the car. Now, we'll go upstairs really quietly, said Fred, and wait for Mum to call us for breakfast. Then, Ron, you come bounding downstairs, going, Mum, look who turned up in the night, and she'll be all pleased to see Harry, and no one need ever know we flew the car. That plan does not work out. It's fascinating to look at the burrow as another example of one of the prominent oppositions that informed our understanding of the first book in the series. Antiquity versus modernity. For Privet Drive, the home of the Dursleys, is all about appearance. The burrow is all about authenticity. For Privet Drive prides itself on a soulless kind of modernity. It fits in perfectly. It is a relic of the modern age. The burrow, more rural, more true, more in touch with itself, more improvised, certainly. It has chickens and gnomes and a ghoul. It's connected to the world around it. It also has, most importantly, life and family and love. And we can't, I think, let me cancel the slide. 
there we are. We can't, I think, at this point, overlook the class implications of the burrow. This is an element of Harry Potter as a narrative that I think often goes overlooked because a lot of the thought and commentary and discourse surrounding Harry Potter is American. And the class implications of this narrative, I think, are not perhaps as readily apparent to an American audience, and that is a wonderful thing, by the way, not as readily apparent to an American audience as they are to the native British audience. And of course, I can't speak with any kind of of informed understanding of how things lie in Australia or in South Africa or in Canada or in other parts of the world. But certainly it seems to me that this take on class is quintessentially, fundamentally British. It is such a part of British culture that it goes unexplained, unillustrated in the fabric of the text. We get references to it, but we have to be paying pretty close attention to understand that what is being said is, is more than it seems. It's particularly difficult when we look at the Weasleys. The Weasleys are poor. They have seven children. They take in strays from all over. They have animals and they have have this, this vibrant, chaotic, anarchic life. And they are absolutely representative of a working class ideal. They are a working class family of a very particular kind that you find in, in British culture or in British culture. In British narrative, in British storytelling, in, in the British culture's sense of itself, if you like. Compare that with the Dursleys. Their little 2.4 children, quiet suburban home on a quiet suburban street that is identical to every other quiet suburban home on every other quiet suburban street. They represent the middle classes, and it is no coincidence, by the way, and there's a thesis waiting to be written on this point, it is no coincidence that the middle class are what represents the middle class within the fabric of Harry Potter are the muggles. They are the non-magical uh, family. And then, of course, we have the Malfoys. We have this empowered, arrogant family with one solitary heir. It's really difficult to look at this as anything other than a representation of the working, the middle, and the upper classes in Britain. Though, of course, even that isn't entirely simple, it isn't entirely straightforward, because we're going to spend time later in the story thinking about thinking about inheritance, thinking about purity, thinking about family connections. The Weasleys, for all that they are poor, for all that they are working-class analogues, for all that they represent that side of British culture, are purebloods. They are a wizarding family. They have every right to be at Hogwarts. Even Draco, though he hates them personally, <laughs> seems to acknowledge that that is true. So it's not even as simple as, as class warfare. Class is simply one element in a, in a larger and more complicated hierarchical conflict. Because we have wizards on one side and we have muggles on the other. We have purebloods on one side and we have muggle-born wizards and witches on the other. We have the wealthy and we have the poor. We have the, the loving and the well-intentioned. We have the familial, like the Weasleys. And we have the cold and the austere and the powerful, like the Malfoys. And all of that, of course, exists in a world in which we have this codified conflict right at the heart of the story between Slytherin and Gryffindor. We're going to talk a little more in this seminar series than we did in the first seminar series about the actual natures of the houses. Though, as I said when we were discussing uh, the Philosopher's Stone, it is still true in Chamber of Secrets that there are two houses that count, and then there are Hufflepuffs and Ravenclaws too. 
And I know that that is an unpopular opinion. I know that that is that is not something that is that is um, that is oftentimes considered or oftentimes represented by people who have even read the later books. Never mind the people who have really delved into Harry Potter fandom. But the truth is that right now, Slytherin really is just the house for bad guys, and Gryffindor really is just the house for good guys. That's going to become much more complicated. That is going to become much more challenging, and we're also going to open up a much more sophisticated dialogue about virtue particularly with regard to the Hufflepuffs and the Ravenclaws later in the series. But in Chamber of Secrets, as a reflection of the Philosopher's Stone, it is still primarily true that there are two teams, there are two sides to this conflict. And that's not even all of it, right? Because we have the conflict between technology and magic, as we always do. We have the flying car as a representation of that. We have the conflict between authenticity and representation, who you really are and who you purport to be. That's a vital, pivotal conflict as we move through. We have this uh, this conflict between, and it's easy to stage this, I think, as a conflict between the, the upper classes and the middle classes or even the lower classes, but that is somewhat misleading. What we have when we're talking about Lucius Malfoy's represent, uh, relationship with the Ministry of Magic, we're looking at a conflict between older, established, entrenched, I don't know, right of power, I guess, we're looking at that natural authority that comes from your position in society and the much more mundane authority that comes from uh, presumably what is inspired by a democratic process, but is at least a self-sustaining bureaucracy. And we even get a couple of perspectives on that bureaucracy. We have Arthur Weasley on the one side and we have Cornelius Fudge on the other, representing, I guess, the well-intentioned and somewhat less well-intentioned or at least somewhat more pragmatic side of that bureaucracy. All of which is to say that these conflicts, these contrasts, these juxtapositions, they speak to our sense of, of Harry's society in the sense of, of, of the bubble of, of culture and community that surrounds him and also society in a broader sense. There is, of course, real-world applicability. It is going to be really uncomfortable to discuss some of the conversations that are had in the book about, about lineage, about the purity of one's blood. And that's clearly conscious, that's clearly deliberate. J.K. Rowling is is using the metaphor of, of fantasy to engage with some really urgent and pressing real-world concerns and considerations, and that's a noble undertaking. That's one of the things that fantasy stories exist for. That's one of the things that they 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 can do better than any other form of narrative. But we have to be aware, as we're looking at the books spread out before us, as we're thinking about the return to Hogwarts, as we're thinking about the school year, as we're thinking about exams and, and classes and, and professors and homework and all of the, the, the stuff that surrounds Harry's experience at Hogwarts. As we're thinking about all of that and as we're looking ahead to all of that, we have to be absolutely mindful of the complexity of the world that surrounds him. And this is not a complexity that was evident in the first book. In the first book, we had really powerful, really dynamic, really engaging conflicts. We had the magical versus the mundane. We had the wealthy versus the less wealthy. We had the, the empowered versus the disempowered. But those were clean divisions, more or less. And in their cleanliness, they were, I think it's fair to say, a little, a little immature. The immature mind sees the world in black and white. The immature sees the the immature mind sees the world as a set of absolutes. We're not yet 
at a point in which Harry understands the full complexity of the world around him. But he is at least, and and we are encouraged to be by virtue of, of this complexity that's layered into the text, we are encouraged to, to look at the world in a more thoughtful fashion, to see that these are not archetypal, eternal conflicts, but that the world itself is fluid and that these conflicts take different forms that they will rise and fall and sometimes rise again. Look at the opening of the Chamber of Secrets itself. These are conflicts that have been going back at least 50 years. These are conflicts, when we think about the construction of the Chamber of Secrets, these are conflicts that go back thousands of years. And there aren't simple answers. And this book, in very quiet ways, introduces this idea very early. We're going to explore that more directly, more conspicuously, more consciously later in the story, by the time that the Ministry of Magic actually enters the narrative toward the third act, we're getting a more studied and considered approach to these issues. But it is present right here, right from the jump. We get introduced to the conflict between Harry's experience and his memory, right up front. What is Hogwarts to him? What is the magical world to him? What does it represent? What does it mean? Where is his place? Who is he if he's not Harry Potter at Hogwarts. Is Harry Potter at Privet Drive the same person, the same type of person? All of these issues are introduced early and then allowed to develop, allowed to burn. It's fascinating to see, when you're paying very close attention, I think, how Harry's relationship with his own identity shifts through the course of the entire book. Because, of course, it's not going to be terribly long until we're dealing with the heir of Slytherin. Until we're dealing with Harry's concerns about his placement in Hogwarts. And when we're talking about his placement in Hogwarts, we're not just talking about being with his friends. We're not just talking about the fact that Gryffindor is capital G good and Slytherin is capital E evil. We're not just talking about that distinction. We're talking about who he is, who a person is. All of that lays in wait for us over the course of the next few weeks. Let me see if I hit every point that I had to discuss here. Oh yes, no, there was one other thing, of course, which is that Harry spends the first two chapters of the book being shouted at, being harassed, being bullied. He then flies away with Ron and with Fred and with George, and they land at the burrow. He gets out of the car and is immediately shouted at, is immediately, or at least in close proximity to to shouting, to, to fury on the part of, of Molly Weasley, I will bow in no one. I will, I will offer no deference in, in my absolute love and affection for, for Molly Weasley. She's, she's just terrific. Um, it's interesting to, to look very carefully at the language, to unpick some of the language there, to unpick some of the rhythms there. It's very interesting that, that the Dursleys generally talk in very short, very clipped, very compact sentences. It's a very kind of ugly, muscular, Anglo-Saxon kind of prose. Whereas Molly Weasley, who is not presented as terrifically eloquent, is not presented as, as a great orator of our time, speaks generally in longer sentences, which I think is a more a more inclusive approach to language. She's trying to talk to, not necessarily talk at someone, even when she's yelling at Fred and George and Ron too. Oh, and we can see a continuation too of the opposition between Privet Drive and uh, and the Burrow in general, with the very specific references to Ron's bedroom right at the end of the chapter. The fact that Harry just loves what Ron takes to be a completely normal bedroom. That's a great moment. Yeah, good. Good, 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 okay. Let's see where we are here. <laughs> yes, uh, 
Usagi Biker says, Unpopular opinion, J.K.R. doesn't expand the views of houses much more as the books go on. Having one major character be from Slytherin doesn't count. You're absolutely right. It's... <laughs> so much of the material surrounding Harry Potter doesn't come from the books. It comes from the fandom, which has this odd, reflexive, permeable relationship with J.K. Rowling herself. There are still, every month in my in my newsreader, I get, J.K. Rowling reveals the truth about this unexpected character. J.K. Rowling explains what was going on in this moment. And of course, if you've taken any of my seminars or spoken to me in real life for just five minutes, then you know how I feel about that. You know how I feel about death of the author. You know that, in my opinion, J.K. Rowling's opinion about the truth quote unquote, that, under, that, that underlies Harry Potter as a story is no more valid than yours. You can interpret and, and read this text just as carefully as she can. Now she can talk about what was intended, but that's not revealing truth as much as it's revealing what was on her mind at the time or what she has rationalized after the fact. Again, that's not a criticism of JK Rowling. Every single author in history does it. So I wouldn't worry too much about that, but you're absolutely right that the, the development that we think, uh, when you have a conversation with anyone, if you go to Pottermore and you get sorted into whichever house you are, I'm a Ravenclaw, which should come as no surprise to anyone, but when you get sorted into your house, even those definitions, those examples, the virtues that are held up as representations of those houses, yeah, I don't know to what degree we see those in the books themselves. I, I'm I'm less confident about, about asserting that, but it does improve. And at least she becomes aware within the fabric of the series itself that this simple good-bad division is more complicated. And, and it's not just the case that I think J.K. Rowling becomes more confident or, or more sure of herself with regard to that. It's that Harry himself does. This is the point that I wanted to make about, about this clash of, of ideology and of class and of perspective and of experience. These clashes, these complicated, fractured conflicts that, that are everywhere in this book are representative not just of J.K. Rowling's developing authorial style, though perhaps there is some of that in there too, but more directly and much more urgently, the representative of Harry's maturing outlook, his, his changing perspective as he grows up, as he embodies and internalizes all of these new experiences. So yes, there is a reciprocity there. There is a there is a shared evolution there, I guess, a shared maturation there. But if you look at it just narratively, if you if you forget about J.K. Rowling's existence, if you if you forget about the author and just treat with the text, I think that it works really well in its own terms. It's 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 one of my favorite things about the series: the way that the series matures, the way that the series just keeps increasing in complexity, and not plot complexity, though certainly it does that, but in moral complexity, in, in the complexities of, of conflict and of ideology and of belief and of desire and all of these hideously complicated things. Of course, so much of that is, is of primary interest by the time we get to Azkaban. Talk about that probably around this time next year, I dare say. Let's see what else we have here. Um, oh, a few people are talking about squibs. Squibs are fascinating. Yes. We'll, we'll talk about that a little when they're, when they're uh, introduced. They're introduced so purposefully in the fabric of the text and then let be, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, Maya says, wow, so not following this conversation since I've not read ahead. Total HP newbie. Don't worry about that, Maya. There's, there's a lot to discover. There's a lot to love. Yeah. 
Oh, we're still having some syncing trouble. I do apologize for that. All right, here's what we're going to do. I am going to put up the final slide here. Your lamp says Molly is fabulous. Best mom. I completely agree. I completely agree. All right, let me put up the last slide here that has some information on what we're doing next week. As I said, if you've been following me on Twitter or if you saw the original post about the Dear Mr. Potter season on Chamber of Secrets, I'm going to move these seminar sessions around to different times of the day. They're always going to be on Friday, except for the first session in October, which is probably going to go out on the Tuesday of that week. I'll have more information about that as we get closer to the time. Next week, 2 p.m. Eastern. I'm also going to run sessions at 9 p.m. Eastern, my more traditional seminar slot, and I'm going to run at least one session at 10 a.m. Eastern, all on Friday, all over the course of the next eight weeks. As you see here, next week, opposition. We're going to be looking at chapters four and five. If you have any questions about the first three chapters, feel free to shout out now in the YouTube chat or on Twitter with the hashtag Swadomp, or you can get in touch with me through the week. You can get in touch with me if you're listening to the podcast. You can get in touch with me if you are listening to this six months after this whole thing is over and I'm already talking about some other book. You can reach me by emailing podcast at storywonk.com. You can find me on Twitter, either at storywonk or at paperbullets, or you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash storywonk. Send me your questions, send me your thoughts, and if you want to enjoy a more developed, more full-bodied conversation about Harry Potter, if you want a little more space in which to express yourself, and if you don't just want to talk to me, but to the community as a whole, I cannot urge you enough to head on over to the Storywonk Forum at forum.storywonk.com. It is the sweetest, kindest, most welcoming, most inclusive community on the entire internet. I am incredibly proud of the community over there. So head on over to forum.storywonk.com, and there we can talk about Harry Potter. I will put up some kind of, I guess, spoiler-free discussion board there, so we can talk about spoilers in full, but also try and keep anchored to the book itself, yeah. Oh, Kate says, six months from now, we should be knee-deep in Voyager. <laughs> six months from now, Kate, I'm going to be knee-deep, I think, in two different seminar series. I'm actually going to be starting my long-awaited There and Back Again series, looking at the works of J.R.R. Tolkien, probably in October or November, maybe the very end of October, right after Spadump finishes, maybe the beginning of November. That is going to be a year-long project in which I look at The Hobbit, and at The Lord of the Rings, and then, yes, we're going to be looking at Voyager 2, the uh, third novel in Diana Gabaldon's Outlander series. That's going to be... Hmm, that's a tricky one. It's probably not going to be until December. It might not even be until January. We're certainly going to try and fit it in before April, just in case Outlander should come back in April. If you've been listening to The Scott and the Sassanac, you know my opinions about that, but I'm hopeful that we'll have lots of time to, to address Voyager in some depth. Lonnie's actually going to join me for the... Uh, for the Voyager seminar series, so that's going to be really fun. We're going to to look at that, uh, look at that very uh, very deeply. Great. Um, <clears throat> oh, Saga <laughs> Biker says absolutely agree that the complexity of the world increases as Harry matures. I disagree that it's reflected in the houses. No, that that's that's fair. That's certainly fair. I'm looking forward to reading it again and and uh, tracking that a little more carefully. Let me see here. Yes, if you've never read Tolkien, you absolutely must. If you've tried to read Tolkien and, and disliked it, you absolutely must again. It's uh, it's going to be wonderful. That is a year-long project. We're going to look at... Uh, <laughs> I think we're going to look at The Hobbit first. 
I'm still playing around with the structure here. I think we're going to look at The Hobbit first, then we're going to look at The Hobbit movies, then we're going to look at The Lord of the Rings movies, then we're going to read The Lord of the Rings. So as I said, it's going to take a year. We're going to look at the original text. We're going to look at the movie adaptations too. It is going to be absolutely fantastic. If you haven't already, head on over to storywonk.com and sign up for the newsletter. There's a link right there on the front page. That'll get you all the information about what we do every week, every Monday morning. I send out an email saying, this is what you can expect from Storywonk this week. And that's also where we announce all of the important upcoming projects. It's going to be amazing. I cannot wait. The Lord of the Rings is the one I've been, lo I've been looking forward to talking about forever. Great. All right. <laughs> okay, you guys. Oh, it's going to be 4 a.m. The, 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 the 2 p.m. session is going to be at 4 a.m. Christine, I'm so sorry. This is it. We're, we're moving around. You're going to have sometimes, uh, some sessions are going to be at convenient times. Some are going to be at inconvenient times. I can only apologize. This is the only way that I can reach as many people as possible and give as many people as possible a chance to interact live. But of course, the podcast versions will go out as normal, and they should hopefully be a little more technically reliable than this week's. I do think that after... Next week, we're doing 2 p.m. Eastern. I think the week after that, we're doing 9 p.m. Eastern. I think that I'm going to try and fit in two of those through the course of the run. So I'll do what I can. And then we'll, we'll talk about doing a live tweet of the movie before that final uh, seminar session, too. All right, let's wrap this thing up, guys. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for all of your brilliant thoughts. Now I get to go back. <laughs> Getting a little distracted because on Twitter, ER Lamp says, here's the words, Hobbit movies gags a little. Yes, the Hobbit movies are not good, but in the sense of completion, we have to we have to take a look at them. But uh, hopefully we'll be able to find some things to enjoy. That'll do it for this first installment of the second season of Dear Mr. Potter. I will be back next week, 2 p.m. Eastern, with more chapters 4 and 5. Guys, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you all have a wonderful night, have a wonderful weekend, and I will talk to you very soon.